Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to start with a little show and tell. These uh, three vials, these three bottles, are filled with three different kinds of holy oils that are used to anoint people in different contexts. Uh, in our tradition, bishops consecrate holy oils that are then distributed to uh, clergy and parish, parishes of the, of the bishop's diocese. These uh, specific oils were consecrated back in September at our uh, diocesan, annual diocesan clergy retreat by our bishop, Bishop Alec Cameron, uh, which we held our retreat at a lovely Orthodox retreat center somewhere in the middle of nowhere, east of Pittsburgh. Uh, thankfully, each of these vials contains less than three ounces, so they fit in my carry-on without any trouble with TSA. Two of our readings this morning, uh, our Old Testament reading and our Gospel, specifically involve the act of anointing. And I think that they're instructive regarding another nuance of this sort of Lenten mini-series theme that I've been focusing on regarding our dependence on God because of God's ownership of us. Ownership of us and indeed ownership of all that is. And we, we follow the biblical practice of anointing in order to show that we belong to God and that we're dependent upon God for our flourishing. Our ownership by God also, we might say, uh, has some ethical implications. That is, we become gods to be used by God. And for us agents who have wills and intentions and perform actions, this means how we live is governed by our status as belonging to God. And this is the framework that Paul outlines in our Ephesians reading. So here's what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like to share a bit about these oils and how they're used in some of our sacramental practices, and specifically how this relates to this theme of ownership. Secondly, we'll look at the uh, anointing passages in Samuel, 1 Samuel and then in John's Gospel, and then we'll look at Ephesians to see how we might apply these ideas of God's ownership of us to our lives. So now first, I mentioned that our bishop consecrated these oils back in September. The bag came from the diocese too, by the way. So it's a holy bag, I guess. <laughs> Consecrate is something of a technical term, the meaning of which isn't always clear. So uh, here's Thomas Cranmer's definition of, of consecration, going back to our 16th century heritage. Cranmer says this, Consecration is the separation of anything from a profane and worldly use into a spiritual and godly use. The separation of anything from a profane and worldly use into a spiritual and godly use. Within this 16th century definition, I think there, there are a few concepts latent here in this, in this, in this, uh, in this sentence here. Concepts like distinguishing or setting apart, separating. Um, a distinction from normal or, or regular uh, to something spiritual or godly. And, and of course, this use component there. These objects are used for certain purposes. So maybe we can restate this as consecration is distinguishing something for God's use. And what's nice about this definition or understanding here is that we can use it to apply to physical objects like oil or like bread and wine, or even to humans like you and I. And I, I think this helps us to see that there's a bit of an analogous relationship between the consecration of something like oil and our consecration or our dedication to God to be used by God for God. So here's some more tell in the show and tell. Our first oil is the oil of the catechumenate. 
uh, or also sometimes called the oil of exorcism. Uh, in some traditions, this oil would be used to anoint an individual who is uh, committing to a, a season of preparation for baptism, uh, sort of an indication that one intends to become marked as Christ's own forever, which we say in our baptismal liturgy. So even, even that intention is something of a step towards indicating that one wishes to be under the ownership of God. And also this oil is used sometimes in baptismal liturgies. If you can recall a baptismal liturgy, uh, there's a point in which the candidate comes forward and renounces the world, the flesh, and the devil right before they make their profession of faith, what they assent to. At that moment, you can anoint someone with this oil of exorcism, which is uh, demonstrating that we're no longer under the ownership of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those have been exorcised from us. And at baptism, we renounce these things, and then we turn towards assuming the ownership of God. So we essentially perform an exorcism of the ownership of the world uh, before we can be taken to be made uh, holy gods, or also, I guess, holy, H-O-L-Y, as well. That's the oil of the catechumenate. Secondly, we have the oil of chrism. Now, the word chrism comes from the same Greek word um, that means, just means anoint, and also the word from which we get the term Christ. Jesus Christ is God's anointed one, like capital A, capital O, the, the anointed one. And then we who are anointed with chrism all follow in this lineage. We are little Christs, Christians, followers of Christs. So the two sacramental rites wherein we use the oil of chrism are baptism and ordination. Uh, in our baptism, after our baptism, we mark the candidate or the newly baptized with chrism oil. And in so doing, we're, we're showing that this person has been joined to, joined to Christ, joined to Christ's priesthood, and has been incorporated into this kingdom of priests that we Christians are. Uh, even in our tradition where we have literal priests, Anglicans also affirm a sort of priesthood of all Christians who are dedicated to the service of God. And then also in, in ordination, uh, we, the church, recognize that God has called some individuals to serve in specific ways, and bishops show this by, um, by use of this sort of oil in the dedication of clergy for the service of God's church. Oil of chrism. And the third oil is labeled the oil of anointing, uh, which is sometimes called unction. This oil is used in rites of healing, and also at the end of one's life, where the prayer book calls commendation of the time of death, or what we properly call, or popularly call last rites, the last rite that you participate in before your earthly sojourn is over. Uh, like in the story of the man born blind, which we'll look at in a moment, I think there's a bit of an ownership connotation to this use of oil as well. When one is, uh, when one is sick, when one needs healing, it sometimes feels like maybe something has taken over one's body. I don't mean like sickness is a kind of demon possession, but it, it more can feel like whatever, a virus, a bacteria, cancer, whatever it is, can feel like it's taken over your body. Anointing with oil and, and the prayers that accompany this rite remind us, remind you, remind the world, that your body does not belong to illness. It belongs to God. It belongs to you, and, and by extension, but it belongs to God for the service of God in his kingdom. And we declare this, and we ask God to heal the ailing body so that a person can better serve God in God's kingdom. Or, in that liturgy as well, at times, we, and I think this is a helpful nuance, we also ask that God would grant the ailing person courage and comfort, for we know that not all illness is, is healed in this life. 
So these are our, our three anointing oils here. And, and our, our readings help us to think about our status as belonging to God, as consecrated to God for God's use. In 1 Samuel, um, David's calling to be the king over Israel um, has this sort of conceptual undercurrent in it that our, our ideas about God's calling, our ideas about what God's ownership entails, doesn't always line up with our own ideas. So we might think of a calling, a, a vocation, as a particular way of manifesting God's ownership of us, God's ownership of our, of our future and, and, and the steps we would take to reach that. By attending to and obeying a call from God, I think we're saying, all right, God, I'm going to trust your plan. That's better than, than my own plan, any plan that I could come up with. And I'm going to try to make my plan your plan, giving over one's life to God. Now, Samuel has to go through a bit of a process to get to the point where, of where he understood what God's calling was for the people of Israel and with the brothers who were in front of him. For God's calling to, to be, uh, for David to be the king uh, was different than Samuel's first impressions. It, it wasn't the older, taller, or better looking brothers. God says, do not look on his appearance, this is the oldest brother, or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel and Jesse and indeed David all had to submit their understanding of calling to God's actual calling of David, the unexpected one, to be the king. As the text goes on, the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he, speaking of David. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. I imagine a horn is a lot bigger than one of these vials here. So a lot of oil being involved here in this anointing. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now I'd suggest that we can make a connection between Samuel's anointing of David and our own use of chrism oil in baptism and ordination. When we submit our consecration, when we submit it to our consecration as priests in the kingdom of God, we answer God's calling, despite how unexpected that might be for us. Now, pivoting to our gospel reading, there's, there's a lot going on in the story of, of the man born blind. And in fact, this is one of my favorite stories. It, it's so rich, uh, there's many lessons to draw from it, which we can't all talk about here at the moment. So let me just make a couple comments on how I think this passage intersects with our themes of dependence and ownership of God, and of course, with our use of oil for healing. Here's the key section for this theme early on. And Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. As this man had been um, afflicted with blindness, he was not able to engage in the world in a manner as he was intended to. He clearly had the capacity for sight. It was just that there was some bodily impediment that had prevented this capacity from being actualized. In a sense, if this isn't too speculative, we might think that his blindness had taken ownership of his eyes. They weren't functioning as though they belonged to him. He wasn't able to use them. And when Jesus anointed the man's eyes, he restored them to their proper place, a bodily part able to be used by the man and able to be used by God as well as they were supposed to be used. I think this shows us that sin, the fall, our finitude, all these things have made the world not the way it's supposed to be. 
and we suffer the consequences of this all the time. And I think our, our physical ailments or impediments too are a result of the great disruption that sin has foisted upon the whole world. Now, of course, when we say that this man was blind because of sin generally, we immediately have to qualify by saying not his own sin. That's like literally what Jesus is talking about here. So drawing the lesson that your sickness is directly correlated to your own sin is the opposite of what Jesus is saying. But I think what the anointing did, and I think what our anointing for healing does, is to make an inroad in this disruption, an inroad into this grand project of restoring the world to its intended functioning, to its intended place as belonging to God for God's own purposes. Now, in terms of our own practices of anointing for healing, I think that um, by and large in our sacramental practices, we follow the biblical pattern as closely as we can. This is why we use bread and wine for communion, why we use water for baptism, because um, that's what scripture describes as being used in our rites. But sometimes we take a little more symbolic approach, and perhaps that's helpful in this case right here. So when we anoint for healing, we don't actually make any mud with our spit. Rather, we symbolically follow that by literally following what James says. Uh, the epistle writer in James chapter 5 says this, Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. But I think what James is describing here in his epistle is linking up with what Jesus does here in, in John 9. Our anointing for healing with oil is a way of following the direct instruction of St. James, but also following the symbolic pattern that Jesus enacted in his healing of this man's blindness, praying that he'd be restored to proper health as we do with one another. So we saw anointing to follow the call of God in 1 Samuel. We see anointing for healing in the Gospel of John. Our selection from Ephesians this morning doesn't include any specific reference to anointing, no oil, no mud, in Paul's discussion here. But what it does contain are some specific discussions of Christian moral or ethical practice. Now, it's not an exhaustive list of do's and don'ts um, for people who belong to God, but it does mention an overarching comprehensive ethic, we might say, in the opening lines, walk in love as Christ loved us. And then it gives a few practical specifications of how this principle plays out, but not in full details. So here's how I think a discussion of Christian ethical practice fits in with our discussion of anointing. We human beings who have been consecrated for God's use, um, we're not just oil that sits in a bottle. We act, we move, we do stuff in the world. Our use as ones who belong to God involves living and living according to a certain pattern, a pattern that Christ has set for us. As Paul says, Paul tells us to, to imitate God. And Jesus Christ, who is God, in the form of a human being, shows us this pattern for how we are to live, what we're to imitate. So being set apart for God's use means living into this reality as ones who belong to God, following the pattern that God has established. And for Paul here in Ephesians 5, he, he, he mentions a few things negatively and, and positively. What, what does this pattern look like? Well, negatively, this pattern looks like avoiding sexual immorality, verse 3. Avoiding greed or covetousness, verse 3 and 5. Avoiding filthy language or foolish talk, verse 4. Avoiding idolatry, verse 5. But there are also some positive principles as well like loving self-sacrificially, 
verse 2, being grateful, verse 4, and living a transparent life, verse 8. These are ethical guidelines, guidelines for our behavior that are the ways that we followers of Christ can imitate Christ, the anointed one, as ones who too have been set apart for God's use. We belong to God. Christians are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. In a sense, as the holy oils are consecrated, set apart for God's use, so too are we consecrated, set apart for God's use. And we display this, uh, we show forth this reality through our sacramental rites, which we associate with anointing, that the oils that belong to God show we belong to God. But in conjunction with this, we display our divine ownership by our behavior, by our actions, how we love each other, how we care for each other, how we treat one another, and, and whether we're willing to submit our actions, our choices, our callings, our futures, not to a pretense of our own self-ownership, but to the reality of God's ownership of us. Thus, not only are we marked as Christ's own with oil, we walk in love as Christ loved us because we are Christ's own. Amen.